GM and welcome to episode 4 of Probably Nothing. Christie's auction house's first NFT auction was in March 2021, which was Beeple's record-breaking $69 million sale. Fast forward to December 2021, and Christie's has sold over $150 million worth of NFTs in 2021. Alexis and I invited Noah onto Probably Nothing to dive deeper into how an English major gets put in charge of NFTs, where he sees the combination of traditional and digital art going in the future, and if there will ever be a Christie's DAO. It was fun getting to talk with Noah on this one because he truly captures not only how fast Web3 has moved in the past year, but also what it's like to get a very traditional institution to take a risk on an innovative concept like NFTs. As always, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify, subscribe, and share this on social media to help others learn more about Web3. Feel free to tag me at Tzong and at Alexis Ohanian. Hey, thank you so much for having me. My name is Noah Davis, and I'm a specialist at Christie's in the contemporary art department. And my focus now is very narrowly NFTs. I might be in the, the post-war and contemporary art department, but definitely what I specialize in is highly contemporary. And I've been doing this since March when NFTs found me with the first people sale. I, I sort of spearheaded that and that was my intro to NFTs along with a lot of the world, I guess. So really sucked me in. I'm head over heels for this stuff and love it deeply. You were the, the cutting edge, man. And I can only imagine what those early conversations were like. Because without making any judgments, I assume institutions like this, the kind of old school auction houses, are not going to be the most receptive to the idea of auctioning off, uh, you know, a JPEG of pixels or a squiggle or a bored looking primate. So how how'd that conversation go, Noah? How'd you, how'd you close them? Well, I mean... The first conversation was interesting. We mostly talked about cryptocurrency. I knew that there were certain executives and definitely certain top clients who were really into crypto. And this was a perfect opportunity for us to kind of dip our toes in and play with that. So I got it across the finish line by sort of, you know, packaging this as a opportunity for us to experiment with cryptocurrency for payment. The fact that it was a sort of ephemeral asset or a completely ephemeral asset, that actually was not a big deal. That was not a big deal, surprisingly enough. You know, we sell dinosaur bones in the context of the evening sale when it makes sense. If there's a market for it, if we can create that kind of fanfare and excitement, then we'll find a way. How did you first get into NFTs and what helped you understand them? I mean, I frankly had only the vaguest idea of what an NFT even is when the Beeple opportunity came along, the, the first Beeple, because now there's been two, but I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. NFTs really found me in that sense. I was in the office, I think in January, to see uh, an IRL piece of art, a, a painting that was in my online sale. Before I started working on NFTs, I was the head of the online sales for the department for the contemporary department in New York and have been doing that for, I think for four years. So I was there to have a look at one of the top lots in the first open online sale in New York in March. And my colleague, my really, really brilliant colleague, Megan Doyle, who's no longer working on, on NFTs, but was helping me out in the beginning. She actually brought the opportunity to my attention. She had been contacted by Maker's Place and 
at the time, we didn't know it was going to be a people NFT consignment. We just knew it was a possible NFT consignment. And when she asked me, hey, would you be open to placing an NFT in your sale? I did a little double take where I was like, what's a, an NFT? Oh, yeah, that 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 thing that people are talking about, you know, because people had just sold $6 million worth of NFTs with that collection at, at Nifty Gateway. And that was really all I knew about it was this is a new asset class or a new kind of collectible and it's you know running on a foundation a blockchain foundation crypto foundation and that's really that's really it well and you've seen a lot for sure in the art world what do you think is the future of nfts in sort of traditional art world well i think that in the traditional art world you're going to see a lot more adoption from contemporary artists who dabble in digital media especially mm -hmm. i think Pace just came out with a new platform for their NFT program. I think I've heard whisperings that Hauser & Worth is thinking about doing something similar. So the more mega blue chip galleries who jump into the mix, I think the more inspired certain artists are going to be to take the leap because, you know, this is a very challenging medium to master and to understand and also to overcome that kind of stigma of NFT as a sort of step below, intellectually speaking, what contemporary art normally is, because it's a very highfalutin space. I don't know if you've noticed this about contemporary art, but I do think that as more artists embrace this, we will see really dynamic projects coming forward and new, really amazing one of one artworks from, you know, amazing, talented blue chip artists. Right now, I think people like Tom Sachs and Damien Hurst. Those are the only real artists with a capital A, fine artists from the, the blue chip world who have kind of mastered this so far. And they're playing the game by the rules of, of the space, right? Their projects very much have gamification to them. And there's a sort of incentive to play along and be a part of this community. But they're speaking directly to a crypto native audience. I think there are going to be artists who come to NFTs and play the game by the old rules and somehow succeed too. I think it's going to be a very difficult sort of bridge to build. Having tried to build that bridge myself, it's a very, very difficult needle to thread. And I think we've only really pulled it off once with the Andy Warhol NFTs that we made with Andy Warhol's foundation earlier in the year, where we tokenized digitally native works that Andy made for the Amiga computer. But that was a very specific example. Artists are going to have to be really thoughtful with how they use this medium to make it really work. So we're a week away from Art Basel in Miami. And how do you think this new Art Basel will be basically with NFTs being such a prominent part of the event this year, right? And all of these old school artists with new school artists. I'm so curious on what you think that whole week of energy and events and and collaborations and what will come out of it? Well, I think there will be, I mean, there's going to be a baseline of like dissonance and friction, but these are good things because that's how you get sparks. That's how you get fire is this kind of collision of weird, different worlds. I do think that probably there's going to be a lot of chatter around NFTs. We will have a space down there. Christie's is collaborating with a really brilliant organization. The boys at, at NFT Now, shout out NFT Now. I love you guys. They are, in my opinion, the only truly great 
crypto native, Web3 native media platform for NFTs. You guys are also amazing. You guys, your podcast is terrific. And so I'm an advisor is, to NFT you guys now. Are the same so kind of, so we're, we're friends. There you go. With them. See, so you know, yeah, they're, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. But yeah, what they've done is really incredible. And we've built this space, which I haven't seen yet. I, I haven't even been able to really conceptualize it in my head because I have the worst spatial imagination of any human being. But it's a 24,000 square foot bank building in downtown Miami that we've repurposed as an art gallery. Super Rare has a presence there. The Collector 33 has a presence there. It's gonna be really incredible to see all of this art in this environment in this really impressive installation because so far really, I think we haven't really nailed it with the actual exhibition component of this stuff. It's been a very kind of stilted sprint towards this moment. I think that we have learned a lot and we're going to apply all of this learning now in Miami. So I'm really stoked to see what that feels like, what it looks like, but more importantly, what it feels like, right? Because the immersive quality of some of these artworks, you need to activate it. And to do that correctly, it's really special. So. And you guys are also doing some like in-person auctions. I want to say I, I read that this week with OpenSea. So, yeah, it's it's not in person. It's actually the opposite, really, which is super exciting because so far, all of the NFT sales that I've conducted at Christie's, all of the auctions that we've done have been wholly off chain. And because they're off chain, it is hyper manual. All of the, the movements of the tokens are, are, are totally analog, right? And also payment too is, is pretty clumsy. It's, it's like we're operating in this new dimension, but we're still pushing the buttons and pulling the string from the old one. And I've been really frustrated with that process, bringing this on chain, using the blockchain to do the things it was designed to do. That's super, super exciting for me. And this is our first collaboration with OpenSea. Certainly if it goes well, I, I see no reason why we should, as a rule of thumb, be conducting our NFT sales off-chain going forward. So we'll find a way to, to get reliably and consistently on-chain. There will still be a place for the kind of old school crying out loud auctions from the, the rostrum with the auctioneer. Certainly like a Beeple, like the one that we just recently sold, that kind of new masterpiece NFT-based artwork that can still live and belong and, and, you know, be marketed in a traditional evening sale format. But if we're selling like an ether rock or a rare Pepe and we're marketing that exclusively pretty much to a crypto native audience, we can't get away with selling that stuff off chain. Yeah. There's just no way. That's a really interesting point. And it's a major kind of development for you guys. What was the uh, internal process like, if you can share, on kind of convincing the old school Christie's to do this type of partnership with such a new age tech company? Yeah, I got to say, I'm, I'm really grateful to Christie's for lending me such a long leash, you know, <laughs> and I've definitely been a, a pain in the ass from time to time and, and kind of pushing for more. It's like when you give a mouse a cookie sort of thing, but this has been a reliably profitable vertical for Christie's now for this whole year and for this to have come out of nowhere we've done now we're approaching I think 120 million in in total wow. volume for Congrats. the year it's going to be something like five percent of our turnover wow. so yeah thank you 
I think that they are now really incentivized to listen when I say that we have to do something in order to, to continue to play in the sandbox. Because just like I mentioned with Tom and Damien and their projects, how they've found success in the space, it's by playing the rules according to the way they've been written by the space. Like we're so, I am so fortunate to be here and to have been embraced, you know, by so many people in the NFT community. And I just owe it to them to listen and to try and give them what I know, not just they want, but, but what we all deserve. Because what drew me in beyond the art and the artists and, and all of that, the promise of decentralization and the things that blockchain can do, I really see this kind of crossroads now where you have it, it's inevitable, right? We're, we're heading towards a future that is going to have a foundation in blockchain. And you can either wind up with the state-run blockchain dystopian future, or you can build one yourselves. And I want to see that kind of world where there's a decentralized blockchain and metaverse that is owned by the people, for the people. And if I can help do that from within Christie's, this, as you say, like old 250 going on 300 year old company, that can be really significant. So there's all sorts of reasons why, but I think that, you know, this is just the way forward. One Christie's Dow. It feels like we're on that <laughs> Yeah. I, you know what? I think that the idea of a Dow is such an incredible thing super rare with what they did with their token, essentially turning their space, you know, their whole market into a, a decentralized autonomous organization. That's super compelling stuff. But I think that, you know, when Christie's Dow, I don't know if it makes sense just yet to dive in. We're also trying to be as much as I'm, I'm pushing things forward and, and being really aggressive with taking certain steps. There are other things that I want to be really, really careful with, like building in the metaverse and thinking about airdrops and that sort of stuff, because regulation is going to catch up with us. Mm -hmm. And until those sort of gray areas become a little more defined and the, we get a little bit less rough around the edges, there's no reason for somebody like Christie's, you know, a corporation like Christie's to, to dive in at the front of the fray. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, even this year alone, kind of with all of the NFT sales you've done, you've basically minted new Christie's buyers, I feel like. I read somewhere where like more than 90% of applicants for a, a certain drop were not previously known to Christie's. You introduced so many yep. people to the brand as well. So that's also a, a really interesting- I want to be clear though, with, the, with that, you're, you're, I think you're thinking about the first Beeple sale and I can't take credit for that. That's not me, that, that really is Mike and Beeple and his community and the NFT community coming to us. Since then, sure, like there have been some sales where I can take some of that credit, but to be fair, I think that I'm just trying to provide a vector or a venue or a stage for these guys and gals uh, to have a voice. The first people auction was almost exclusively promoted on Discord, right? How's that process like? I'm sure it's very different from any sort of other previous auctions, which I don't imagine most auctions are promoted on Discord. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Funny, funny enough, I didn't join Discord until after uh, the the people sale. I was terrified of of all of this new social media because I'll be honest, I left 
Facebook. I deleted my Facebook account when I was in college. I found Facebook That's to be reasonable. incredibly toxic. <laughs> and I still think that it's a, it's a bad thing for mental health. Same with, with Instagram. I barely spend any time on Instagram anymore, which I'm so thankful for because I used to be so addicted to scrolling Instagram. Of course, now I'm addicted to other things and there's certainly a, a way to find a balance. But I was terrified of Discord. I was terrified of Twitter. And I only got into Discord because my friend, Justin Aversano, I love you, Justin. I think he's recorded with you before. Justin Aversano, the incredibly talented photographer behind Twin Flames. He invited me in to the CryptoPunks Discord to promote the sale of the CryptoPunks that we had in our evening sale in May. I was so self-conscious when I was creating my Discord persona. My username was Noah the Poser because I felt like I was a poser. I felt like I, I didn't belong there. Like I'm the corporate suit who's just pretending to be, you know, part of this space. Even though I don't, that's none of that is true. Like I really do want. I at the time wanted to be a member of this community. I felt like I didn't belong, and so I, I've more recently changed my username now. Now I have my ENS name in the the yeah, on Discord, but it took the same kind of push to get me on the Twitter too. The Beeple sale was sort of promoted. I, I don't even really know how it was promoted because I was just so busy doing the traditional media and trying to stay afloat and learn this new language. The first time I heard somebody refer to Ethereum on Clubhouse, Clubhouse was a thing still back in the day, you know, when, when we did the first Beeple sale. When I heard somebody refer to Ethereum the first time as ETH, I took a beat and I had no idea what that meant. I really had no idea what ETH was. I bought my first Ethereum in, in April, you know. So late than never. Yeah, this has all been a, a wild kind of breakneck speed that we're that we're running at. Last seven months have been crazy. <sighs> Ever since you got your first without uh, a doubt ETH yeah, in April. Without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, I bought it the, like the worst time because I think I got it. I bought in at like forty three hundred and it went up to like forty six and I was like, yeah, cool, this is great. And then we went through that huge crash and correction. Now I'm feeling better again, but it was uh, it was a trial by fire for sure. That's okay. That's okay. There's in five years, ten years, there's no bad time to buy Eve. Yeah, I mean, I was even debating buying more this morning when I woke <laughs> up to you know COVID 3.0 or whatever it is that we're now living through. Good times. Good times. So I have a very interesting question for you, Noah. Your degree was in English from NYU, but with a focus on absurdist post-war French theater. First, like, what does this even mean? And share if there was any relevance to NFTs, because it feels like there is some relevance kind of having that background, but we'll love to, we'll love to hear from you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Um, I'm so glad that you read the fine print on the Christie's website in my bio. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, French or absurdist theater or whatever, you can combine those, those three words, any which order you like, but I think probably the best intro text, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, La Contatrice Chauve by Eugenio Nesco, which translates as The Bald Soprano. That's like the quintessential absurdist French drama. Eugenio Nesco, I think he's from like Hungary or, or somewhere in, in Europe, but he moved to Paris and he was learning French and English. And 
he was struck by the absurd experience reading his textbooks seeing the way that they were trying to teach you family dynamics and and saying things like if you've ever learned a, a foreign language you've been through this experience before where you have the the page in your book and it's like the son and the mother and the father and the daughter and they're introducing each other to themselves like i am the father like hello you are my son hi good to meet you and it's like these people are in a family why are they introducing themselves to each other so he had this really weird cognitive dissonance where the foundation of language was suddenly super shaky and unreliable and so this play that he wrote the bald soprano absolutely nothing makes sense it's it's obviously indebted to people like the dadaists and people like Marcel Duchamp who are questioning the kind of moral and aesthetic values of the time by way of absurdity and i really keyed into that i, I love i love unesco i love jean genet i love beckett camus those guys are are kind of touchstones for me still and yeah definitely i think a lot about the theater of the absurd in the context of of nfts because this was part of the fun in the beginning what 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 really drew me in was how ridiculous all of this was and how counterintuitive to the kind of standards of the 21st century contemporary art world where to be totally frank like i never felt like i completely fit in and i was sort of put off by some of like the more pretentious vibes in contemporary art and how people take themselves too seriously but the absurdity of selling an asset that does not exist how it's sort of like the emperor's new clothes that really attracted me and i do think it's totally rhymes with the philosophy of the theater of the absurd for sure unesco would love nft i love how this has come full circle for you yeah it's weird it's really weird how the universe does that right actually wait that's funny i hadn't even thought about this but unesco has another play called the chairs which is about a philosopher who comes up with a unifying theory of life and the universe and the whole play is him inviting all of the guests in to hear his theory but there are no guests there are just a bunch of chairs he keeps on rolling out chairs he and his wife pull out all these chairs until the whole stage just covered with chairs and there's no audience there's nobody there which is kind of like nfts let me <laughs> In <laughs> a chance of pushing the absurdity absurdity of this even more, I look at what secondary sales mean in a world with smart contracts, and it almost makes me feel like the previous model will look absurd by comparison. Like I think there's a feeling among artists when like a friend of theirs sells a work that's kind of like you dude how dare you sell my work <laughs> right or 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 even just you know someone you know there, there's got to be some uh maybe not seller's remorse but there's got to be some feelings when you see a work that maybe you sold 20 years ago for a primary sale of x you know go at auction for 100x a few decades later now that the math is forever changed you know i think those same artists would then celebrate even when a friend of theirs like parts ways with a painting that they knew was a part of their private collection, they're, you know, they're getting an email notification letting them know that, hey, there's some money at your ETH address. Like, what does that do to change everything about royalties in the art world when all of a sudden secondary sales are even, not just worthless, they were previously worthless, but now even more valuable 
for the artist in the primary sale. Yep. I mean, I think about there's this famous story, the first contemporary art auction or like the first big important contemporary art auction. I think it happened and I'm gonna butcher this. So like fact check me here. I think it's like the in the eighties, pretty sure it was in the eighties, the skull collection. This dude offloaded a ton of really amazing contemporary art, like some of the best pictures of the 20th century. And the artists themselves, a lot of them were present at the auction. And I think it was either de Kooning or Rauschenberg. Again, I'm butchering this whole story. But they they accosted Skull, the guy who was selling, because he had bought these pictures from them for hundreds or thousands of dollars and then was selling them for tens of thousands of dollars. Of course, now they're worth tens of millions of dollars, many of these pieces. But I think that there was a, an intense animosity between artist and collector in that moment because it felt like it was deeply unfair. And it is deeply unfair. It, and you've seen things like California resale royalty, where the state of California was pushing really hard for there to be a resale royalty, like they have in certain places in Europe, the Joie de Suite for artists, which I, I totally think, I mean, this is not the opinion of my employer. This is my, my opinions are my own, but I think that artists should have these royalties, right? That they deserve it. But ultimately we decided that America is too capitalist a place to allow for that sort of thing. So that I think ultimately failed. The, the California Resale Royalty Act did not hold up, but with NFTs, with, with blockchain, the artist, the creator has control over this stuff. You get to dictate the rules because the blockchain, this is, this is where we get into the, the whole dystopian possibility versus utopian possibility, right? Because blockchain doesn't care what you tell it to do. It's going to execute it 10 times out of 10 forever. It's never going to make a mistake. So as long as you program it with protocols that are equitable and fair, then that's going to be the rule forever. The opposite is also true. It can take a turn where it's, where it's a very scary kind of blockchain, but this is the, the time. The time is now to seize it and to make sure that the rules are written in a way that, that makes sense and that are fair and are equitable. And I think we're doing that. So. so you're talking about like an artist who gets duped into signing up for a contract that like, or, you know, grants them zero royalties. No, I mean more like it's because way it worse is the than that. System. Essentially, I don't mean to, to get into like the scary <laughs> territory here, but I mean, you took it there. Things like social credit, you know, where social credit is being reinforced by a blockchain. If you can't get on the subway because you questioned the authority of the leader, you know, that that kind of stuff is what really scares me. Ah, got it. The idea that your MetroCard is not going to work because it's connected to a blockchain that says you're a dissident, that you think a way that you shouldn't think. That's possible. Got it. Okay. But from from an artistic royalty standpoint, it seems like it's all upside. Yeah. I mean, I think that I hope that at least in the future, artists will own their smart contracts. Manifolds are the studio that are going about this in the most mm -hmm. utopian kind of way, I think. Manifold have been behind yes. the smart contracts yep. for a lot of the artists who have brought important work to auction. And I've worked really closely with Richard and Wilkins. I think that their philosophy of artists owning their smart contracts, having that kind of independence and a durable independence that they can deploy whenever they need to, that is brilliant. That's really, really special. 
And that way the artists can never get duped. And if they do get duped, it means that they duped themselves. So I think having that kind of responsibility and independence is really admirable. And that's the way forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I just keep thinking back to like, just the fact that traditionally centralized auction houses playing in like the Web3 and like the ethos of decentralization, cutting out the middlemen, how we think about all of that. I know you kind of touched upon that a little bit, but I'm sure it's going to be a recurring question with these artists and just choosing where they are going to do their auctions or sales in the coming future. Now that there's so many different options, right? Mm -hmm. How do you think about yeah. that? Well, I think, you know, I, this is why I've been prioritizing working with artists for the most part. You know, I, I, I love artists. I like to make art when I'm not working for Christie's. Like that's sort of where I come from. And so if I can help an artist to tell their story and do it in a way, again, that's equitable. I just keep returning to that, that word. I think a lot about equity, but I don't see my role as very much as like a middleman as I used to, you know, because I used to work mostly with collectors, almost exclusively with collectors or estates and very infrequently with, with artists, almost never with artists, unless they were complaining, you know, or upset. And, and to be fair, like they, they have every right to feel you know, upset and annoyed when contemporary art comes to auction, because usually it's not under the best circumstances. Like there's an industry term, we refer to it as the three D's of divorce, debt, and death. Like those are the, the three major driving forces that bring contemporary art to auction in the first place. So of course, there's going to be a kind of animosity there because you're, you're starting from a place of negativity. It's, it's reinforced negatively. But in working with artists, it's all positive. It's all good. It's like amazing. I, I feel such an incredible bond with Mike, with, with people now, having done this twice especially. But I also feel an incredible bond with, uh, with Victor, with Pawocious. We've made art together. You know, plenty of these artists have I sat down and had an amazing lunch, hot ramen in the summer, which was a terrible decision in New York City, but with, with Joshua Davis. You know, I hang out with these guys and, and, it, and it just feels... It feels right in a way that before felt weird or I felt like, you know, I was kind of the enemy almost in a way. And now I feel like I'm actually helping these artists to tell their story in a, in a really special way. It's more wholesome. I respect that. <laughs> and it's wild to see, though, because I think a lot of folks in your position could have been more resistant to it. So kudos to you for studying the absurdity of the French. Uh, to to be more uh, eyes open for the opportunity. Thank you, man. It's been, honestly, it's been like the greatest privilege and not a day goes by where I'm not humbled by this space and the humility of the people in it and the generosity of the people in it too. It's kind of magical. Like it's everything that I, everything that I really chafed against or felt, you know, kind of frustrated with in the contemporary art world is not at play in this space like it really is just like we shed the skin or whatever it was like that wasn't serving us in contemporary art and we're building this new space that really does feel special and i want to help to promote that and protect that and if you could pick one nft to take with you to desert island what would it be 
my crypto. Easy. That's easy. Um, I was going to well, say, I, mean, I, I, can, I, I would could, assume you know, it's your cryptos. Yes. Yeah. From, from my collection or like any NFT on the planet? Because then you get into... Your collection. Actually, that's a good question. From my collection? Let's, yeah. Let's do both. Let's do both. I, I'm curious. Okay. Well, let's do both. Okay. From, from my collection, it's the crypto followed up by my dead fella. But if it's any NFT on planet Earth, it's a, it's a very specific crypto punk. It's from the collection of Store of Value, SOV, SOV.ETH. He owns, a, or she, I don't know who SOV is, but they have a, an absolutely incredible, immaculate crypto punk collection. They own a wild white VR with pink lipstick, and you can go find it or I'll send it to you. That is the, that's my grail. That is my grail NFT. If I could own any NFT on planet Earth, I've, I've spent a lot of time obviously looking at, at CryptoPunks. And I have this debate often with my friends in my little Discord where we talk about the best punks that are out there. But I definitely think SOV's collection is the greatest. And that, specifically that, wild white VR with pink lipstick, if I could own that, I can die happy. Wow. We have to find out. Which and speaking of absurd, right? The fact that I, you can see, you can see that I'm like, I'm, I'm lighting up with visibly excited about this, this thing. That yeah. is just 24 by 24 pixels. And it's like, I think that thing is just such a cool, magical, special item. Yeah. Wild stuff. That's fair. I can't argue against that. This sounds like a really strong pick. Oh, that both punk? Both, both a, picks. It's special. Yeah. They're both, they're both, it's, they're both wild whites, which is funny. I really like, I like the wild white trait. It's a, that's a very fundamental trait right there. Solid. Well, we really appreciate taking the time, especially during, during the holidays. And we'll see you in Miami. Yeah, see you in Miami. You can tell the sun is going down here. I'm going to drive back down the, the, the hill and enjoy a little family time. I hope you guys get to spend some time with your family too. Recharge a little bit. Should be fun. Thank you everyone for listening at islands are also hiring. We're looking for a head of engineering engineers, designers, DM me on Twitter or check out our website islands.xyz if you're interested in joining, but we'd love to see you there and jump into our discord. See you all.